Amen. Let's take our Bible tonight. We're going to be in Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah chapter number 9. We're going to look at a couple verses here and a few other verses through this chapter, but I've been reading through Jeremiah, and it's uh, a rich book as you understand the context of what's going on in uh, the life of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, these two verses have uh, always stuck out to me as to, uh, especially in contrast to Israel's setting here, and that's in verse 23 through verse 24, and I'll try to connect all of this together for us. Uh, but the title of the message is, is very simple, in what can man boast? It's a question, in what can man boast? And uh, many of us could answer that question pretty simple. We would say nothing, right? <laughs> uh, but there's something here I think that uh, is, is good for us to recognize and uh, remind our hearts with that our boasting or any kind of claim that we could make is always going to be the Lord, the Lord and His grace. And so let's look at this verse in uh, verse 23 through verse 24 of Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. When we think of our life, we think of who we are, maybe where we are, or what we know, or what we have, what we're able to do. Uh, There's a lot of ground within those things that we mentioned just a moment ago that people like to boast about. We know that we can't boast about those things, yet we find mankind does boast in those things, either by means of verbally boasting about them or by means of just inner self-confidence, depending on those things uh, for themselves. And this is how humanity is, and it is sad because dependence on those things ultimately leads only to destruction, only to the judgment of God. And when we think about boasting in such things, the reason we can't boast in such things is because the true nature of those things are vain and empty. Those things that we mention, they have not come forth of our own power, nor do they have the ability to save us or to make us right with our holy God. And Scripture tells us here, as well as in other places, that there's only one thing that we must boast in, particularly as God's people or glory in, and that is the one true God. The God who the Bible describes as Christ Jesus and we find that it is only through His grace that we can glory in such. And so when I think and, and speak of boasting or glorying, I'm not talking about an arrogant self-praise of, of that nature. I'm talking about a humble recognition that we acknowledge that Christ alone, God alone, the one true God is who we claim for all that we are and all that He's done in our life. But I want to give you a little backdrop here. The reason these words come to them in Jerusalem and Israel is because judgment is coming upon Judah and Jerusalem. And why is that? Jeremiah, throughout the book of Jeremiah, you're going to find it's a constant proclamation of judgment. Jeremiah was ordained to be a prophet before he was born, and when the right time came, God called him, and he's a prophet to them. And Jeremiah is told ahead of time, they're not going to listen to you. So you imagine you know, being called to preach, and you've already got the foreknowledge that they're not going to listen. They're going to reject you. They're even going to persecute you. But Jeremiah, I, I give him... Uh, credit for his faithfulness. He was faithful to the Lord despite what he's going to endure and how the people are going to respond. But Judah and Jerusalem, 
they're going to face judgment because they have willfully and persistently rejected their true God. They have forsaken His law. They have uh, plunged themselves into idolatry, uh, worshiping false gods. And so in the preceding passage, you'll learn that God has given indictments against them for this. We find that they were very proud, very stubborn, very self-righteous. They were content in their sin, and they would not heed the warning that Jeremiah is bringing to them. And God calls upon them to hear that no matter what they think about uh, what they have to boast in, what their reliance is on, he's pointing out here plainly that there is no ground for boasting in any other thing than that we know him, that his people know him. So this text reminds us today as Christians, it also reminds us how empty we really are, who we really are without the Lord. We have nothing and no one to glory in but God alone. So I've got this broken down into just two headings for you tonight, Uh, and so we'll look at this together. Notice with me, number one, we see the empty glorying of man or the empty boasting of man. And the Lord lays out three things that are empty that man boasts in, that Israel was boasting in. And we notice firstly that boasting in wisdom is vain. They were boasting in wisdom. Notice he says in verse 23, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Now, the Lord references the wise man here, not in the sense that they truly possess godly wisdom. For where does godly wisdom come from? It comes from the Lord himself, right? Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy uh, is understanding. Uh, So the people in question here, they don't have a fear of the Lord. The Israelites, those in Jerusalem, they don't have a fear of the Lord. Uh, They have forsaken the Lord. So when the Lord says, let not the wise man boast, he is speaking in terms of those who deem themselves to be wise. They might be intellectual. They might be uh, very knowledgeable. They deem themselves to be the wise of their day. Yet, according to the Lord, we'll read and find out that they are actually fools. Now, how do we see this in the setting of Jeremiah? Well, if you look at verse 11, look at what God says in this pronouncement of judgment. He says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. Now, that is some striking words for those in Jerusalem. That is judgment language. That is what God is declaring. I am going to make your beloved city, this city that is, has been so beloved in their history, a heap of ruins, and the cities of Judah without inhabitants. Now, here's how wise the people of Jerusalem are. They hear this pronouncement from Almighty God, and they do two things, about, two, two things with it. One, they reject these words as being untrue. As you read through Jeremiah, what's their response? The Lord surely is not going to do that. He's not going to do that. Jeremiah is proclaiming false words, right? See, they had their own prophets that were saying to them that, no, God would never do this. He's not going to do this. Uh, So they reject the words as being untrue, and they fail, secondly, to see why these words are even being spoken by Jeremiah in the first place. And here's where you see the question of their true wisdom. In verses 12 through 16, notice that God says, Who is the wise, who, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness? 
so that no one passes through. So that's the question. What's the answer to the question? They're not going to answer the question rightly, but here's what God says. The Lord says, because they have forsaken my law they have set, that I have set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, and walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Those are some piercing words. You think about being among Jerusalem, having Jeremiah the prophet come into your place where you're so content and think all is fine with God, and this proclamation is brought against you. This is the words. But here's the test of their wisdom. They're not even wise enough to discern why judgment would come. Here's what their sin has done to them. It has caused them to forsake the word of God and the God of the word, and they don't even see their sin, and they are not even startled by the promise of judgment that's coming. It doesn't even phase them. It doesn't even phase them. This points to their own depravity. But not just theirs, the rest of the world too. This is essentially a picture. This is what you can find with the rest of the world. Now, are there supposedly wise people today who fit the same description as the Jews of Jeremiah's day? Does, men, uh, do, does mankind like to glory in their knowledge and in their wisdom and take pride in such? Absolutely they do. Many cling to their, uh, their knowledge and their advancements, whether it's their uh, technological advancements or their new scientific theories that they've uh, come to promote. Uh, they puff themselves up with pride and essentially think that they are gods in and of themselves. They declare themselves independent from the one true God with no fear of their own accountability to God for their sin. Just one example is the uh, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins. Anybody heard of him? He's, he's, a, he's one of the probably the foremost atheists of, 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 of this day and age. But he's an atheist and he's an evolutionist and he's a man of great intellect but is blinded by his own intellect. And he is quoted as saying this, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. So he views religion, specifically Christianity, as the means by which we don't actually see the world clearly. Bill Nye, the science guy, says the same thing. Anybody watch him growing up? Yeah, I, I used to watch him. thought he was real cool until I figured out who he was, really. But um, Mr. Dawkins has it backwards. The only way to properly understand the world is through... True religion, and by true religion, I mean biblical Christianity, a Christian worldview. So he is a major proponent of degrading God and boasting in his scientific knowledge. He boasts of such, that this is what makes me superior to all them lower class Christians who don't have a clue what the world is really about. Now, what does Scripture say about the wisdom of this world? 1 Corinthians 3, 19 through 20, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. 
So the world thinks they are knowledgeable and wise, but anything that they actually learn about this world, understand it all flows from the knowledge of the infinite, true God, the one who has understanding. Now the sad reality is that knowledgeable men of this world will distort the plain facts and deceive as much as possible to erase any link to God as our creator or Christ in the gospel. Let's look with this, Look at a passage of scripture that will parallel this. We'll look at this chapter twice tonight, but 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 through 25. I want, to, I want you to see this for a moment. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 through 25. We, what, we, what we see is that many men in their self-proclaimed wisdom, they perceive the truth of God and his gospel as foolishness. And in perceiving it as foolishness, they actually become fools themselves. And here's what Paul describes about this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 25, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Of this age, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I read that passage passage of Scripture with great joy. I'm glad that knowing God and the gospel doesn't depend on me being intellectual and super smart. (laughs) I'm not that smart a guy. He didn't make it to where you have to be intellectually wise Here's the reality, whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're looking for a sign or think wisdom's about it, God calls people of all walks of life and all categories of, uh, of society and brings them to himself. And it doesn't depend upon the worldly type of wisdom. It depends on God who calls, right? But what we find through this is that he makes foolish the wisdom of the world. He shows the difference between the world's wisdom and the wisdom of God. The world and its wisdom... <clears throat> rejects the gospel and thinks it's foolish. But God in his wisdom uses the gospel to call out of the world his people and saves them from their sins. That's exactly what we find in, uh, throughout Jeremiah's day is that the contrast shows us that those who think they are wise, who reject the word of God, who scoff at sin and judgment to come, they are indeed the fools of this world. With the foolish wisdom that the Jews had uh, had professed, think about it in this terms of what has been going on in Jeremiah, with this foolish wisdom that the Jews think they have, will that wisdom deliver them from judgment? No. Will the wisdom of the world deliver them from judgment? No. And so thus we find the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. It will not deliver him. So it's not his intellect. It's empty glorying of man. Notice with me, secondly, the empty glorying of man. Boasting in might is vain. Might. He says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Well, what is meant by might? Well, might is our strength, power, and ability. Again, 
This is a suggestion that this person assumes he is mighty. So perhaps he is mighty by the standards or perceptions of the world, but in this way, it is true that mankind likes to think of himself as mighty. Many people do many things to try to make themselves stronger and more powerful in various ways, whether it's physically or financially or mentally. Men want to be mighty. My dad and I used to uh, watch a, uh, a competition on ESPN or one of the sports channels, and it was called the World's Strongest Man Competition. Anybody ever seen that? I got a kick out of that uh, that show, and so did my dad. But these guys, uh, they, they are competing, trying to lift the heaviest items they can lift, some of them lifting cars, some of them pulling, uh, pulling planes with, with a rope or a chain. I mean, these guys... I wouldn't want to mess with them. Uh, I could probably outrun them, but I couldn't outlift them. Uh, but these guys, these, these guys build up themselves to get as strong as possible, and when you get to the very end and see who's the strongest, boy, they love to flaunt it, right? Uh, they're the world's strongest man. How mighty they are. They flaunt that title as if nothing can touch them. Now, when men feel they are mighty and cannot be touched, they boast of it. They boast of it. Even in their evil, they boast of these things. Psalm 52, 1, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. So mankind, understand, he deceives himself even with his might. What ultimately happens to the mighty of this world? The mighty fall in one way or another. All of them do. They fall either by losing what they had. Arnold Schwarzenegger used to be one of those, you know, muscle guys. You ever see him now? He's not the same anymore, right? Age has got him. And guess what else is coming? The grave. So it doesn't matter how mighty a person thinks they can get to be at some point in their life, they will fall. They will decline at some point, whether by losing what they had or being topped by someone else mightier than they or simply by death. And here's the reality. No matter how mighty someone thinks they are, death cripples us all. Not any one of us here, no matter how tough we think we are, will escape death. You can't do it. You have a date with death. It cripples every mighty man. One example of this is King Saul, and we look in the Old Testament. He was one who was quite boastful and proud of his power. He was a mighty man for a while as the first king of Israel, but Saul was killed in battle. And here's what David said of him in 2 Samuel 1.19 when he heard of Saul. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen. The mighty always fall. They always do. And that brings us to consider Israel and Jeremiah's day. I want you to consider them in their context. Do they think that they're mighty? Absolutely they do. They think that they are strong. They have themselves a king. They have walled cities. They've got wealth. They've got armies they've got all sorts of things but what could so what could possibly happen to them with their might what can and did happen is the judgment of the lord is there any so mighty that they can withstand the judgment of god no there isn't now there's a lot of men today who foolishly flaunt and they'll even blaspheme the name of god thinking that well god has nothing on me God will not surely judge me. Little do they know that they will face God's judgment. Nations like to think themselves of 
forceful and formidable, powerful forces in this world. They boast of their weaponry and their, uh, their nuclear advancement. They make threats and they try, to, they try to puff themselves up, right? But who are they before God? Who are they before the Almighty? Isaiah 40 and verse 15 tells us this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands or the islands like fine dust. That's what God has to say about the nations. No matter how mighty they think they are. And this was Israel's problem. They thought they were a mighty nation who could live in sin without consequence. But understand this, that sin is always a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, Proverbs says, but sin is a reproach to any people, and God has pronounced judgment on them. So thus he says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the wise boast in his wisdom. And the last thing he brings out as to empty boasting is riches. Boasting in riches is vain, or wealth. The Lord says to them in verse 23, Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now, there are many who are very wealthy in this world, very rich materially. And it is often with riches that the pride of being untouchable enters the heart. Now, it is not a sin to have riches. Don't mistake me here. But, the, but it is a sin for riches to have you. There's a difference. Paul told Timothy in regards to teaching his own church, 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this world, present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you see this exhortation of what not to be like with riches, but the opposite is what we see happen in our world around us, right? Men set their hope on their riches. They become proud. They become haughty. They, become, they, they lift themselves up. They begin to trust in their riches, and it is a source of great boasting. It's great boasting. One who comes to my mind is in boasting of his riches. You'll see him on social media if you've been in touch with some of the sports world, but his name is Floyd Mayweather. Anybody heard of Floyd Mayweather? Greatest boxer of all time by some. He's got a record of about 50 or 51 and zero. He's yet to lose. But one of the things you'll see with him on social media is he's always flaunting his money. Tables with cash stacked to the ceiling. Uh, watches that cost a million dollars. Cars and all of these sorts of things. He, he boasts in his material possessions. He's not the only one who does that. There's many out there that do that. But to mankind, money is power and security. And it was the same for Israel. Israel was wealthy. They had a lot of blessing from, from God, especially from earlier kings. You think about David, King Solomon. I mean, no, no earthly king really compared to King Solomon as far as wealth and might and wisdom. I mean, uh, people from nations would come to see Solomon and what he had done in Jerusalem. But could the wealth of Israel rescue them from God's judgment? Absolutely not. See, it doesn't matter how much wealth a person has, it cannot save them from the judgment of God that they are deserving of. Though they, though they have wealth, it won't, and they, though they trust in it, it will not protect them. There's no amount of wealth that can do that. Proverbs 11.4 tells us this, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. The righteousness delivers from death. So there is a warning here to Israel. 
None of these things that they boast about will rescue them. It does not matter how wise they think they are. It does not matter how mighty or rich they think they are. It does not matter that they claim to be God's people, that they claim to be religious. And this truth carries over to all of humanity. There are many people who are going to wake up after death in hell because they thought their wealth would get them to heaven, because they thought their status in society would be good enough to get them right before God, because they were religious. They went perhaps to church all their life and wake up in hell because they were religious. They thought that was what was needed. Here, here, here's a startling passage of Scripture that I think is true to Israel. In that day, it was true to Israel in Jesus' day. It's true in our own day. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, where Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it does not matter what we think we can boast in. If we do not know Christ and he know us, we're lost. It is all about Christ. It is all about him. So that brings us to the only thing that man can glory in, based on our text in Jeremiah chapter 9. What is the only thing that man can glory in? And I want you to understand that this glorying, this boasting I'm mentioning, it is only of grace. It is not of us. The only glorying of man or the only boasting of man, number two, is threefold, just like the first, first point here. The first one is this, and this is this foundation that we know God personally, that we actually know Him. We know Him personally. Notice what he says in verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, that he understands and knows me. This is the foundation for everything. Do we understand and know God? Not do we know about God, but do we actually know God? This is the central problem for the Israelites in Jeremiah's day. They think they know God, but they don't have a clue who he is. They do not know him personally. They know their history. They know their lineage. They know the covenant promises. But they do not know him in their heart, and that is evidenced by their idolatry, by their forsaking of him. John Calvin comments rightly on this. The Jews were so swollen with false confidence that the word of God was regarded worthless by them. You see, the Israelites had become no different inwardly than all the godless nations around them. Now look at the evidence of this in verse 25 and verse 26 of this same chapter. Notice what he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised where? In heart. Notice he lists Judah with the nations around them. They were no different than the surrounding godless people. 
Why is that? It didn't matter if they had a heritage of knowing the true God. That generation did not truly know God. They did not know Him. And so understand that this is what the religious of our day miss. Religion is not what makes you know God. You know what makes you know God? Regeneration makes you know God. Being given a new heart by which you by faith wholly trust in the one true God and His redemptive work on behalf of sinners. True religion, as we would say it, is the result of regeneration in the heart. So only those who know God in heart, understand, are His people. And indeed, as the New Testament describes, are true Jews of God's covenant. Romans 2, and verse 28 through 29, here's what Paul says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And here's the reality with Israel that day. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they were not circumcised in the heart, meaning they did not have a heart that knew God. They had all the outward things, but the inward was wrong. So how is it that we can know God when He is so high and so highly high, holy? How can we know God when we are so depraved and destitute? The only way that any sinner can truly know God is through Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. Jesus, the sinless Savior who came into the world to die for sinful men. There's no other way to know God except through which, by means of what Jesus did, His death on the cross to atone for sinners and His resurrection from the dead, conquering the grave itself. Here's what Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here's the reality. There is nothing in ourselves that can make us right with God. Our wisdom can't do it. Our might can't do it. Our wealth or riches can't do it. We as sinners are totally depraved and in desperate need of righteousness, something we do not possess. But Christ does. And by means of the cross, when a sinner's faith is placed in Christ, Christ's righteousness is placed in the sinner. There's an exchange that happens the moment someone is born again. And friend, that is the only way to be rescued and know of a surety that you are saved. So when it comes to this, we see, when we come to see our desperate condition, that Christ is our only hope and we come to trust in Him, we learn that it is only knowing Him, not just academic knowledge of Christ. There's going to be a lot of people in hell too that knew a lot about Jesus, but they didn't actually know Him inside their heart. They never were born again. When you come to truly know Him, you understand that the only glory you have, only boasting you have is Jesus alone. Because you coming to know Him was not of you, it was all of Him. Paul said this, Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, once we real know Christ, we realize that Christ is everything to us. He is all I can claim. I can claim nothing outside of Him. I have no wisdom of my own. Christ is wisdom to me. Paul writes it this way of Jesus in Colossians 2.3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I have no strength of my own. Christ is my strength. Psalm 118.14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I have no riches of my own. Christ has become my riches. 1 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And no, he's not talking about giving you your private jet or the car you want. He's talking about eternal treasure. What greater treasure is there, sinner, than eternal life? Life with God that never ends. There is no greater treasure than this. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 1. I told you we'd come back here one more time to consider the rest because Paul actually quotes our text in Jeremiah in the New Testament. Paul makes this truth plain as he quotes this passage and it follows the passage we just read. It picks up right off the tail end of it. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, notice what God's chosen here. He's chosen the weak and lowly and uh, these sorts of things that the world deems as unworthy to manifest His power in saving sinners. Why has He done it this way? There's a purpose in verse 29. Here's the reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, if it was according to wisdom, I could boast in such a thing. If it was according to might, I could boast in such a thing. If it was according to nobility or riches or wealth or, or societal status, I could boast in such a thing. But God has made it so that it is impossible for any person in His presence to boast of anything except grace alone. Grace. And here's the clinchers. You come on down to verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, and here he quotes Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. In the Lord. It's not of us in any fashion. This boasting, understand, it's not an arrogant exaltation of self, so that, oh, look at me, I'm saved. No. It is a humble recognition, a humble recognition that I claim nothing but grace. I claim nothing but Christ alone. Salvation is not an accomplishment that I achieved. It is a gift that was given to me. Often today when someone gets saved, the person who got saved is praised as if they've, made this great, they've had this great accomplishment. Now don't get me wrong, when someone gets saved, we ought to rejoice 
rejoice that they are saved and that they have professed faith in Christ. But understand, rejoicing in the salvation of others is not praising them for something they accomplished. It's rejoicing in what God has done in and through and for them. Now, Israel had a lot of things, but there was a generation that grew that did not know God. Thought they did, but they didn't. And so thus, Jeremiah in God is reminding them through Jeremiah, there is nothing you can boast in except if you know me. So do we know him personally? Letter B, not only that, Jeremiah points out, well, we know God personally, but we also know God's practices. God's practices that flow from his perfect and righteous character. Those who know God also know his character and practices. Verse 24 says that they know me, that I am the Lord who firstly practices steadfast love. What is steadfast love? It's also translated as loving kindness. It is, it is his covenant faithfulness to his people. Does God exercise this towards his people? Absolutely he does. God is more faithful to his people than his people have ever been faithful to him. Think about that. God's more faithful to you than you are to him. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore the Lord our God is the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. That's a description of his character and his nature who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now Israel had forgotten and a generation arose that did not know the Lord and his ways. But even with that, you understand that the Lord is going to raise up another generation from their descendants who will know him. He's going to bring them back to their land as he promises through this book. Even though that generation had totally forsaken him and would suffer his judgment. This displays his steadfast love and covenant to his true people who would know him. So we must know that our God is a faithful God. Notice also that he practices justice. could be translated also as judgment. This justice is, is the right decisions and verdicts according to his holy will. This is what God was doing in Israel at this present time. He is a God of justice. He brings the right judgment to disobedient people. He brings the right judgment on wicked sinners. He brings the right judgment to nations. Understand this, that there will be judgment for every individual, no matter how wise, mighty, or rich they thought they were. Every person in this room individually, one day will stand before God and God will do what is right according to His holy will. And you know what is right and deserving for every single one of us? Nothing but the wrath of God. That's what I deserve, that's what you deserve for our sin. Everyone. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So justice is the practice of the Lord, and understand that His practice of justice is always right. It's never wrong. It's never unfair, though many claim it to be. Now this connects to the last thing the Lord says. He practices righteousness in the earth. Now many look at things that happen in our world and think, well, that's just not right. Based on what standard? Should we say that in regards to our own skewed thinking in our sinful nature? You know, people look at catastrophes and bad things that happen and think, well, it's absurd that the Lord would ordain or allow such a thing. You look at the floods happening in California and some, some will say, well, why is God allowing this? Yet that kind of understanding is misguided. Because here's the reality. All of humanity deserves the wrath of God anyway. 
So bad things that happen are, are, are part of this sin-cursed earth. Understand this. The same thing applies to the Israelites. Guess what they're going to say? When Babylon shows up, they're going to say, how could the Lord do this? They judge him as not being righteous in what he's doing. But they were wrong. And here's what we must understand. Whatever God does or allows is righteous in its purposes, for there is no such thing as unrighteousness with God. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in some of his ways. In all his ways. And kind in all his works. So these are the practices of God. And one of the reasons that people object to or blame God for things is because they neither know Him nor do they know themselves. John Calvin wrote this in commenting on Jeremiah. He said, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves. The two things are connecting, connected. And there is truth to that. We must see God for who He truly is, but we also must see ourselves for who we truly are. We are sinners before the Holy God. We must know him and his practices. This is what we glory in. But let us see, we see that we know God's pleasure. What is it that pleases God? It's these things we just mentioned. Notice that God says, for in these things I delight. He takes delight in steadfast love and righteousness and justice. They're not just descriptions of who he is and what he does, but understand that because these please him, This is also what he has called his people to live out in their own practice. And this truly connects to Israel's problem. They forgot their God, they forsook God's law, and they no longer pleased him in practicing justice and righteousness and faithfulness to their God. Listen to the prophet Hosea Hosea as we close. Hosea 4.1 describes Israel in his his era of ministry. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Again, in Hosea 6 and verse 6, God says, I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, he he wanted them to know him, not just go through religious rituals. And so the people of God, at the result of this, because we know him, We know his practices, we ought to pursue to please him by obeying him in all things that he's brought to our attention in his word. So though God was faithful to Israel and Israel was not faithful to him, though God was commanded justice, Israel did not practice justice. Though God practiced righteousness, Israel did not practice righteousness. And we as God's people must heed the same warning and understand that we're called to know him, called to love him, We're called to please him in our lives. So in what can man boast, to answer the question, the only thing that we boast in is the Lord alone, that we know him. And even in that boasting, it is not an arrogant self-exaltation of praise, but rather it is a humble recognition that we claim grace alone from the one true God, that we know him. And if we know him, we ought to praise him and we ought to please him with our life in contrast to what Israel did. Don't do what Israel did. We do the opposite. We obey, we love him, and we remain faithful to him in our life.